Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I'll just first just tell you about a time I was in grade 8, and uh, I think it was just a great year. My teacher was a man called Mr. Hampton, young man, I remember he had a full beard, and uh, just was very cool was a cool teacher. And at times he would just give us the afternoon off. And, and one afternoon he just gave us the time off. And so we were all just doing whatever we wanted. And he was playing, I remember he was playing Stairway to Heaven. That was his favorite song. And uh, we were just running around doing whatever we wanted. And at lunchtime everybody was leaving. And he called me back. And so everybody was gone. He called me back. And he said, Adrian, do you realize that everybody in this school likes you? And my immediate reaction to him was, what about Leia? Because there was this one girl that did not like me. <laughs> she really didn't like me. And so I said to him, what about Leia? And his immediate response was, forget Leia. He, he, he was so frustrated that I was concentrating on Leia when in his observation, he thought the whole school liked me. And I think that that is very natural that rather than see the good, we tend to see the bad. Rather than seeing that the glass is half full, we notice that it's half empty. And as we interact with people, sometimes it's the negative interactions that consume our attention, rather than all the positive interactions. And just turn with me to Luke 17 as we open. Luke 17, and in verse 1, Jesus Christ, our Lord, said to the disciples, and by extension to us, that it is impossible, but that offenses will come. So he's saying to his disciples, look, offenses are going to happen. It's impossible for them not to happen. It's this this carnal nature that we have as we interact with one another. It's going to happen. But then he says this, he adds this, it's impossible that, uh, but that offenses will come. So they're going to come. But then Christ says, but woe unto him through whom they come. This is our creator talking. And he's pronouncing a curse on anyone who brings offense to one of his children. So this should cause us to shudder. We we shouldn't read over this and say, yeah, whatever. We should read this and pause and think, I never want to be in that category. I never want to face Jesus and say, yeah, I knew that they were one of yours, but I didn't care. Never. He says it would be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea rather than that he should offend one of these little ones. I mean, that's really something. For the creator to say, it's better for you to drown and have no way of escape than to face me after you've offended one of my little ones. And then he says in verse 3, take heed to yourselves. And I will interpret that uh, because it's plural here in the Greek. Look after each other. Protect each other from my wrath. 
when you see offenses coming into the body, understand the outcome of these offenses and, and look after each other. Don't take this lightly. If your brother trespasses against you, rebuke him. So it's not all mamby-pamby, silly-willy. Sometimes you have to be strong for the sake of the brother. If your brother trespasses against you, the Christ says, go ahead and rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We need the body to be strong. We cannot have kind of hypocritical relationships where on the surface we pretend everything's okay, but it's not okay. If it's not okay, we need to deal with that and then make it okay. And this is like, do it in a way that you understand what's at stake. So what I want to do for the sermon today, which will be more like a Bible study, is explore what it means to have the relationships that we have in Christ and how important it is for us to keep these relationships healthy. And that's been a priority here in Burlington since our inception. And I've got to say, I think we're doing pretty good. You know, we don't want to get arrogant and and feel lofty, but I think we're doing pretty well. And it doesn't hurt to be reminded. And it's something that all of us have to contribute. All of us have to build this together. Look at Matthew 24, and this is why I'm concerned about this. It's It's not so much what is. It's more about what will be. So it's more about uh, getting an immunization shot for what's coming, as opposed to having treatment for any kind of disease that's in the body right now. In Matthew 24, as Christ tells us the situation that will befall us in the end time, he says in verse 12, And because lawlessness shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. This is our future. And I think we already see it. Anybody who has their eyes open will see the, the world is falling apart. You know, here we are celebrating 150 years of this nation. I was thinking to myself, that's like two lifetimes. You know, you take two people 75 years old, And put one up against the other, and that's 150 years. It's a very young country, and yet it's a phenomenal country. I think it was one of the best countries, well, still is one of the best countries in the world, but it's rapidly changing. We we are being sold out, we we are being betrayed. Uh, We are, in, in fact, our prime minister says that we're no longer a country, we're the first post national country, meaning we have no borders. We're just, we're just a, a state within a global country. That's his perspective. So I don't know how much longer we'll be celebrating Canada Day in the patriotic way we are now, where we're waving flags and we're saying we love Canada. Uh, that seems to be passe. Now it's, we're part of this global, or global organization, global country, which is leading to lawlessness. We're all the same. Everybody, you could have a criminal record as long as my arm. You're welcome to come to the country. You could be a terrorist, gone to fight for a terrorist organization, and when you come back, we will not revoke your Canadian citizenship. It's all good. Uh, so we're heading into this time. It's a time when lawlessness will abound, and the agape, this is God's people, the people who have agape, the people who have holy, the Holy Spirit, 
the agape of many of God's people is going to wax cold. That's what this lawlessness is going to do. It's going to drain us of our agape. In verse 10, if you look at two verses before that, he says, speaking of this time that's ahead of us, that many, not a few, I mean, this, this keeps me up at night. Many will be offended. So he says it's impossible, but that offenses will come. And then he says here that, in fact, many will be offended. So it, it's going to come. Many will be offended. Uh, woe unto those through whom the offense comes. But many are going to be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. If you, if you are wondering what's the future of the church, it's right here. This is the future of the church. And so we have to work hard to be the faithful within the church. Christ himself says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? And he asks it in such a way as to say, no. So that means we have to work hard to be in the category of people that when he comes, because he says in another place, well done, my faithful servant. So, the, so there is a category of people who are deemed faithful. And that's, we, we need to be in that category. And that means we can never be among the people who betray one another. We cannot be among the people that our love waxes cold. That as iniquity abounds, we keep our head on our shoulders. And we keep the Holy Spirit thriving within us. So let's begin today in Luke 15. Just to begin to develop Christ's perspective on our relationships. In Luke 15, in Luke 15, Jesus Christ takes us into a family situation. So we ourselves are in a family situation here. We are brothers and sisters. Well, here Christ brings us kind of this x-ray into a family in verse 11 where he says that there's a certain man that had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. So the father, he has an inheritance that he's going to leave to his sons. And uh, I think it's probably like a 60-40 situation where the older son would get 60% and maybe the younger would get 40. I don't think it would be 50-50. But he goes ahead and he divides and he gives the portion to the younger son that he's entitled to. And really what the younger son is saying here is, I can't wait for you to die. So can you hurry up and get, get it over with so I can get my inheritance? Uh, and so the son, the father, gives him his inheritance. So this is not a good son. And not many days after, verse 13, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. So he came into his inheritance and he went to a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. So he's an Israelite. He's now joining himself to a Gentile. And the Gentile sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine ate, and no man gave unto him. So the Gentile really has no mercy on him. It's like you do your work, and I'm not giving you a penny more than when the work is done. So he's got to figure out how he's going to eat, and he's, going to, he's willing to eat the, the food that's fed to the swine. 
verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? So his father is totally opposite to this Gentile, where for the Gentile, the worker just has to work to the bone. And how you eat, I don't care. But his father has hired servants, and they have bread enough and more. So he's thinking to himself, this is crazy. Even if I was a a servant of my father, I would have enough to eat and more. And I'm perishing with hunger working for this Gentile. I will arise, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. So he realizes even to be a servant is better than the condition he's in now. So he arose and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. And the son said to him, Father, so the son begins his speech. He's rehearsed it. I know what I'm going to say to him. I'm going to just really try to placate the situation and so he's ready to start his speech father i've sinned against heaven and in your sight and i'm no more worthy to be called your son father interrupts him the father said to his servants bring forth the best robe put it on him put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring here the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat or let us feast and be merry for this my son was dead but he's alive again So the son was as good as dead to the father, but now it's like he's been resurrected. He's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son, which is the brother, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother's back, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. So everybody's in having this feast, and this guy is furious. He will not come in the house. And what this is showing us is relations in a family where these are two brothers that should love each other, but because they both actually had selfish hearts. The one was saying to the father, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance. And so the father said, no problem, here it is. And the other, when he comes back, he's furious. He's not happy at all. He actually has a very wicked heart. And this has exposed it. And so the father's trying to entreat him now to say, come on, let's, let's, your your brother's alive. And he answering, verse 29, said to his father, lo, these many years do I serve you. Neither transgressed I at any time your commandment. And yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. So here we have a brother that is righteous, at least on the surface. He's doing everything right. And he really represents the pharisaical approach to religion. He's checking all the boxes, and he's doing everything right. The the father has the money in his hands. He wants to make sure he gets his inheritance. He's checking all the boxes. He's righteous. But his heart isn't righteous. This situation is exposed, 
that he actually has an evil heart toward his brother. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you are ever with me and all that I have is yours. So everything I gave to your son, everything that's left is yours or to your brother. It was appropriate that we should make merry and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So Christ is trying to show us here that we have to see beyond the surface that we can be in a congregation and, you know, I, I wear nice suits. I show up every Sabbath and I look nice. I say the right things and I check all the boxes. That doesn't mean my heart is right with God. And what God wants is our hearts. He says to, you know, repeatedly to the Pharisees that you will be shut out of the kingdom. That many will come from all four corners of the earth and come into the kingdom and you yourselves will be shut out. Even though you're checking all the boxes. And so this brother here, with this heart, will not be in the kingdom. In fact, it's the prodigal son who repented, who was dead, and now he's alive. He's the one that is going to be in the kingdom. And so this is the perspective that we have to have, that it's a matter of the heart that God is looking for. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 16, Keeping the prodigal son in mind, we go into chapter 16, and in verse 1 he says to his disciples, so after he says this parable, he then says to his disciples that there was a certain rich man which had a steward. So the rich man now is God, and there's a steward. And this is an extension of the the parable of the prodigal son. And we'll talk about that in a second. So he says he had a steward. And this steward was accused unto the rich man that the steward was wasting all his goods. He was a horrible steward, in other words. He was not doing his job. And so he called the steward and said to him, How is it that I hear this of you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, and to beg I am ashamed. I know what I'll do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they, that is all the people that he has been interacting with, that owe his master money, the debtors, they will receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much do you owe my Lord? And the indication here is the steward had no idea. Even though if if all of you were debtors to my Lord, I should have an accounting of, I should be telling you how much you owe my Lord. But because he was just so careless, I sort of like, how much do you owe my Lord again? And he's trying to work it out. And then he says, when, when he finds out how much is owed, he said, 100 verse 6, 100 measures of oil, that's a lot of debt. And he said it to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. So we'll collude together. My master has no idea how much you owe. Make it 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. Verse 8, Christ says, the Lord commended the unjust steward. So the Lord was impressed with how this man handled himself because he had done wisely. So, so the Lord realizes, okay, I'm going to fire you, 
But before I fire you, I need to know what what do my debtors owe? And he took that opportunity to position himself for the new reality. So the world was going to go upside down on him. The world was going to change on him. So rather than uh, try to hold on to what is passing away, he prepared himself for what's coming. So he prepared himself for the new world. And the Lord was impressed. He was like, wow, you were in a bind and you worked out how to get out of that bind. He had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So Christ is telling us there's something about the unjust steward, which there's a wisdom that the unjust steward has that the children of light don't have. We're kind of, we're kind of very um, simple. We're very simple-minded compared to this. And Christ is sort of yearning that we would have this sort of wisdom. That is to say, this world is passing away. And what we should be doing is preparing ourselves for the new world. And making sure that when we're put out of our positions today, so when this world turns on us, that we've made provisions for the new world. So he says here, to explain what he means in verse 9, I say to you, and this is what he's telling us to do, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So verse 9, he's telling us, be like the unjust steward. Have the wisdom of the unjust steward. And that is to say, in the new, in the new reality, know who's going to be in charge. And prepare yourself by making friends with them. So in, in the unjust steward's case, all of these debtors really would represent the poor. And the rich man represents the rich. But Christ says when he comes, he's turning this upside down. And he's going to exalt the lowly. And he's going to bring down the mighty. So for us... We need to be looking to say, who is God going to exalt? And let us use the resources we have today to make friends of those people so that when Christ exalts them, they will receive us into everlasting habitations. This is how Christ wants us to think. But we don't think like this. Instead, we are offending the very people that God, I don't say we are, we could be offending the very people that God is going to exalt because they look like nothing today. They, they don't look like they matter today. But they matter a great deal to God. And when he exalts them, he's saying, hopefully, you have been charitable toward them so that they will receive you into everlasting habitations. And then he says this. Again, he's the, the whole notion is stewardship. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So this verse, brethren, should expound for us the parable of the prodigal son. That the older brother was unjust in nothing. He had all this wealth, but from Christ's perspective, it's nothing. It's a little. And Christ is examining how will you behave 
with the resources you have now. And so the older son is showing Christ, I will be selfish. In fact, I'll be cruel. And Christ is saying, you know what? If you're going to be unfaithful with this nothingness now, I can't give you what I really want to give you. So we have to see the parable of the prodigal son being explained for us here by Christ. In verse 11, he says, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So that which is another man's, again, the unjust steward was unfaithful with that which is another man's. But everything that we have today, it doesn't belong to us. It's all passing away. It's, it belongs to God. He entrusts it to us as stewards. And he's evaluating us. How do we behave with what we have today? When he returns, what he gives us then will be ours. We will, we will come into permanent riches. But now he's giving us temporary resources so he can evaluate us. And then he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we, we have to, either we have this attachment to God, or we have an attachment to our resources. There's no, there's no in-between. So maybe I'll just pause here, because it's a small group, and just ask for your feedback on, on what you've heard so far. Does it, does it make sense? Uh, any Clarification needed, your thoughts or comments? Huh? You look like you had a thought. No? Okay. And I just, oh, uh, Brother Ray. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is this is the point. I think that that's a great point, uh, Brother Ray. That uh, you know the older brother seemed reasonable in his reaction, and I think this is what happens to us: that when we're in God's church, if we've been in the church for decades, doing everything right, we begin to feel entitled. And somebody comes along. In fact, there's another parable about you know somebody comes along at the eleventh hour and they get the same paycheck as people who've been laboring all day, and the people who've been laboring all day resent the fact that this person gets the same paycheck as them, even though that's none of their business. I think I've seen a lot of times in the church where just by virtue of being in the church, we're part of the body, suddenly there's this sense of superiority. There's a sense of self-righteousness and a despising of others. And I think this is what we need to be careful of, that we have the heart of God and not the heart of man. Yeah, there's a natural way that man responds, but God's heart is like everything. I'm here to serve others. I'm here to help others. I rejoice at anybody making progress in their walk with God. And so I think this is, is there's a natural response, and then there's a spiritual response. I think I saw. Yeah, I was, you just covered what I was going through. We just come, where we just come from, the sermonette about 
perfect. Yeah. And, and it is true that there was a, a resentment there because the ones who had worked an hour got the same wage as the ones who worked all day in the hot sun. But the, the, the summation was that God has one gift to give, and that's eternal life. Now, in, in that, um, the, he just elaborated that our works determine what level or, or what job we have in the kingdom because our, our works are sort of like a, a building skills on a resume as to what we can do. But it ultimately, in, as being part of the kingdom of God, our job is to serve and to help and if we don't have that that serving attitude, then how can we be part of the That's right. Kingdom? That's right. Right on. Very good. And this um, this conclusion that Christ makes that we cannot serve God and money. You're either going to serve one or the other. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or vice versa. That's it. It's like he, there's no in between. And so I think what Christ is telling us is. Fix your mind on the kingdom. It's coming, and everything's going to be changed. So fix your mind on that, and then just be, be a faithful servant. This isn't mine. Everything that I have, it, it, I'm a steward of what God has given me. And so I'm just focused. I'm just completely consumed with being a good servant, being a good steward. And I think this way we're not double-minded. And this way when, somebody, when, when something comes along where somebody is advancing toward God, the father ran to the, to the son. When the brother heard the news, he should have ran to his brother if he had the heart of God. But instead, Christ is showing, Christ is exposing the Pharisees, all with their religious robes and long beards and beautiful sounding words. Christ was exposing them and showing what they're really like. And so we just have to be very careful. And I think that's a great uh, comment that you made there, uh, that God has one gift, and the more we serve, the higher the reward. Because God can say, I can trust you. You have my heart. You see things the way I do, and, and if I give you resources, you'll use them the way I would use them. So you'll be an extension of me. That's great. Any other comments or thoughts? Okay, let's go to um, 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, shares with them how to think, how to process, how to make decisions around interacting with our brothers or sisters. So remember from Luke 16, Luke 15 and 16, things are not always the way they appear. Okay? So people who look poor today who look like they're nobodies today, but they're in the body of Christ, these are future kings. These are the future rulers. And it just it sounds so ludicrous, but this is reality. This, this whole society, it's passing away. And, and a new society is going to be established that's going to be permanent. And these people are getting ready to occupy those positions. So we have to be very careful about how we interact with each other. And especially, I think, uh, think of our young people as well. 
So young people are coming up. They're learning the word of God. They're going to be established in God's church and ultimately in his kingdom. And sometimes you think, you know, I'm a senior person. This, this young person doesn't know anything. Hey, let's be careful because God has a plan for all of us. And so we have to, we, we have to be interacting with each other very, very humbly. Now, mind you, when your brother sins, you, you rebuke him. You deal with it. Don't, don't, shove it, don't just um, sweep it under the carpet. But here in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul teaches us how to think. So the Corinthian church wrote to him regarding meat sacrificed to idols. And so he's responding to their request for their, their inquiry. So he says in verse 4, Concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. So you can imagine this is a horrendous thing. that They're, they're having their pagan ceremonies and they're taking this, these animals and they're sacrificing them to idols. And then people are eating this meat. But Paul says, we, those of us who understand, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And there is no other God but one. So, so we have this knowledge. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So, so we who have understanding... There's one supreme God. We don't believe in Trinity. We don't believe in multiple gods. We don't believe that idols or anything. There's one God, and it's the Father. And under the Father, there's one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. And we understand this. So when people are sacrificing to idols, idols don't have any power. And we who are in the know understand this. Then in verse 7, he says, however, kind of unfortunately, Howbeit, there is not in every man, that is in every Christian man, this knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So it's like, um, it's a potluck. We, um, I, was, I was shopping, and half a cow was on sale because it was, it was used to sacrifice to the idol. And so I thought, wow, I better grab that. We have a big potluck coming up. I grab that, we cook it, we make it available. And uh, it's like somebody asked, where did that meat come from? It came from the pagan market there. And so we all know it was sacrificed to idols. But somebody in here is super sensitive, and they think this is sinful. We should not be eating meat sacrificed to idols, that we're engaging in paganism. And Paul is saying that person who's super sensitive like that and they have these kind of standards of righteousness, they're wrong. They're wrong. There is nothing wrong with us eating that meat because the idol is nothing. There's only one God, and that's God the Father. The idol doesn't have any magic power to kind of poison the meat. So that, that brother or sister who's super self-righteous and saying we should not be eating this, and that, Paul is saying they're wrong. However... Even though they're wrong, because everybody's now eating the meat, 
they go along and eat it, and it defiles their conscience. They feel like we all eat it, it's no problem, but they feel like this is wrong. And so they're now afraid to eat it. And they, but they eat it anyway, and now their conscience is, is defiled. And what that means is they, are, they have broken their relationship with God. And sometimes people get like this, like, you know what? Uh, I'm in the gutter. I might as well just do all the other sins that I was trying not to do anyway. I mean, I'm in God's bad books anyway. So this is dangerous now because now they could really be taken out. And Satan is looking for the, uh, uh, as, a, as a roaring lion. He's seeking who he can devour. Here's someone he can devour now. So then in verse 8, he says, But meat does not commend us to God. For neither, if we eat, are we the better, neither if we eat not, are we the worse. And these, these are, you know, in this case, at this time, it was meat sacrificed to idols. It's always something. You know, it's eating in restaurants. It's, it's whatever it is. There's always something. And so Paul is saying, the brother is ridiculous. The brother has no knowledge. The brother is, is um, fooling himself with self-righteousness. Okay? The truth of the matter is, whether we have the meat or not have the meat, it doesn't make us any closer to God. But then he says in verse 9, so, so he's saying to the Corinthians, you're right. The meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. You're right. But then he says in verse 9, even though you're right, you better take heed. The same words that Jesus Christ used. Take heed to yourselves. So yes, you're right about the meat issue, but you're wrong. You're right, but you're wrong, is what he's saying. But take heed, be careful, beware, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. So yes, you're free. Have the meat, don't have the meat, do whatever you want. You're right. But you're wrong if you cause a stumbling block to be put in front of your brother or sister who's weak. So rather than boast in your strength, you should humble yourself and look after the person who's weak. For if any man, this is the weak man now, sees you, which has knowledge, you're right. But if this person who's weak and who's wrong sees you who has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? So you kind of, now he's looking at you and like, well, if Adrian can do it, I can do it. And so he's doing it, but he's doing it against his conscience and he's defiling his conscience. And so in verse 11 is the question. This is why he says, take heed. And this is why Christ said, take heed to yourselves. In verse 11, and through your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? This is the question. So when we gather and we see a brother or sister for whom Christ was brutalized, he came to earth and he was slaughtered for that brother or sister. And because we have knowledge, do we just not care? He says in verse 12, but when you sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's why he's saying, beware. That's why Christ said, beware. 
you can sin against Christ. Then in verse 13, this is how we ought to think. He says, therefore, if meat makes my brother to offend, I'll be a vegetarian for the rest of my life. It's just not that important to me. I love the meat, especially when it's seasoned just the way I like it, and it's tender and it just falls off the bone. Oh, it's wonderful. But you know what? If this involves my brother or sister who's weak, that that meat means nothing to me. From now on, I'm a vegetarian. Beautiful. Yes, can we go there? Romans 14. Do you know which scripture it is? Let's, uh... Romans 14, 16. 16. 16. Yeah, yeah. So let's look at that. Mm-hmm. Let me just take a look at this. Yeah, this is great. Right on. So let's go from verse 14. Actually, verse 12. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. So this sort of self-righteousness that we impose on one another, let's not do that anymore. But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Perfect, Hank. Right on. Do not put... So this is, our, this is why he said, I'll be a vegetarian for the rest of my life. He's resolved not to put a stumbling block in his brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He's actually addressing the very same situation. This is good. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Brilliant. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves God in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. That is the perfect scripture. And sorry, Heidi, you don't have your hand up, right? You're just, yeah, yeah. That's the perfect scripture. Any, any uh, more comments or thoughts on that, Romans 14? That's great. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 8. And just go back up to the top, verse 1, where he says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So we, we have knowledge. We know what's going on. But then this is the caution. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And this, this is the problem with being in God's church, is every week we're being educated. Every day we're studying our Bibles. We are aggregating knowledge. And what goes with that knowledge is arrogance. And that, that's what happened with the prodigal son's older brother. He was just arrogant and heartless. And sometimes, sometimes the most heartless people are in the church. That if you want mercy, go to somebody who's not in the church, who, who, who's not religious. 
And at least they might be a bit more compassionate. Uh, sometimes we get so self-righteous and so judgmental and harsh. And, and this is the danger. This is, this is sort of these, this catch-22 that we're in. Grow in grace and knowledge. And sometimes we just grow in knowledge. And then we end up jeopardizing ourselves and others. But he says here that agape edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So whatever knowledge we have, no matter how much we have, it's really nothing. God is not impressed. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And if we love God, we love our brother. If we love God, we're faithful stewards. We're using our resources to help our brother. So what, what impresses God is our stewardship, not our knowledge. And that's exactly what he's pointing out here. So let's look at the final passage that I want to look at. And then a scripture after that. Luke 19. As we read Luke 19, we need to keep in mind the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the ten coins and one was lost and the rejoicing over finding it. The parable of the hundred sheep and one was lost and the rejoicing over finding it. We need to keep in mind the parable of the rich man and the wise steward, the unjust steward who had a wisdom that God wishes the children of light would have that kind of wisdom of how to use our resources to plan ahead for the the change that's coming. With all of that in mind, we come to Luke 19. And he said, therefore, verse 12, a certain nobleman, this is Christ, went into a far country, which is heaven, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. In other words, do business until I come. In other words, be a faithful steward. So I'm going away. I'm, in, I'm putting you in position as my steward. Do business or trade until I come. And again, we have to remember the story of the unjust steward as we read this one. Now, Servants aside, they have their assignment. His citizens, the, the people of the country, the people of Jerusalem, they hated him. So this is now talking about the Pharisees and the religious people. They, they're his citizens, not his servants, but they hated him. And they sent a message after him, so while he's gone, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Under no conditions do we want him ruling over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, so again, the unjust steward understood that the world was changing. His world was changing. Everything was going to be new. So he prepared himself for the new reality. Now he brings these 10 stewards together, and he's basically saying, prepare yourself for the new reality. Be, be faithful in, in your stewardship. So he returns with the kingdom and he commanded these servants to be called to him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So this is the evaluation. I gave you a pound. How much did you gain? 
So if we understand the story of the unjust steward, God wants us to take that pound and trade into the kingdom by doing good to those people who are going to be inheriting the kingdom so that when they inherit it and we fail and this, this life is now over, they will receive us into everlasting habitations. So he wants to know how did you do with that trading? Then the, came the first saying, Lord, your pound has gained 10 pounds. So this has to do with how this steward interacted with his fellow brothers and sisters, those that are inheriting the kingdom, that he managed to take the resource he had and he gained 10 pounds. And so he says to him, well, you good servant. In another place it says, well done, you good and faithful servants. Inasmuch as you've done it unto these the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. So this servant with his pound did something to the least of God's people that he's doing it unto Christ. And Christ is now able to say to him, well done. Because you have been faithful. You're a faithful steward in a very little. So whatever wealth I gave you, you were faithful in it. Have authority over ten cities. In other words, you have the kind of heart that is like mine. And if you have resources, I can trust you to do the things that I would do with those resources. Unlike the prodigal son's older brother. The the, the prodigal son's older brother could never be a ruler in God's kingdom. Because he's cruel. He has a cruel, a selfish heart. And the second, verse 18, came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, be you also over five cities. I can trust you. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. In other words, I didn't do any trading. I did not interact with your people. I didn't help anybody. I didn't look out for anybody. I just took your pound and I just left it there. Because I feared you, because you're an austere man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap where you didn't sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. So again, the, the prodigal son's older son would be evaluated as a wicked servant. He says, you knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. So he thinks he can get away with this behavior by saying to Christ, you're a wicked person. But Christ is saying, Well, I'm going to judge you out of your own mouth. It says it here, actually, verse 23. Yeah, verse um, 22. Out of your own mouth I will judge you, because you knew that I'm an austere man, taking what I laid not down and reaping what I didn't sow. Therefore, why didn't you give my money to the bank, that at my coming I might have required my own with usury? So if you couldn't use the resource, why didn't you give it to someone else? So at least I would have some gain, some, some profit on my money. And he said unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and give it to him that has 10 pounds. Give it to the person that is most like me. Because I can trust them to act like me when they have the resources to do so. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. Yeah, but there's a reason he has 10 pounds. He has the heart of Christ. For I say unto you, that unto everyone which has 
shall be given. And from him that doesn't have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So again, knowledge puffs up. So the, what he's, these Pharisees who are very religious, they check all the religious boxes, they seem to know a lot, they seem to have a lot, Christ is saying they're deceiving themselves. Because the real evaluation is how we treat one another. That's how Christ is going to be evaluating us. So let's conclude in Galatians 5. And in verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. And this is, this is just an amazing scripture. Uh, we're in a time now where it's all about, I, should, I was going to say freedom, but it's really about the lack thereof. We're moving into a time where all of humanity is having their freedom taken away from them. That is how the devil works. And he's working through different means, religious, political, social, to strip us of our freedoms. That's what's happening. Christ is all about freedom. A human being is not a human being to Christ if they're not free. Christ wants us free. And then in our freedom, he wants us to lovingly choose him. As he has lovingly chosen us in his freedom. God is not looking for robots. God is not looking for puppets. He's not looking for clones. He's looking for individuals who are free and who want to engage in a long-term covenant with him. But we're in a world now where rapidly freedom is being stripped away, especially here in Canada. It'd be very interesting what happens over the next five years. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, which is what the Corinthians were doing with the meat sacrifice to idols. They're free. They know. They don't care. But through love, serve one another. Occupy till I come. Trade. When when he comes back, he wants to know, how much did you gain by trading? So our whole focus is not what we know. Our whole focus is not how righteous we are. It's not how much we have. Our whole focus is serving one another. Loving one another. Identifying who are the citizens of the kingdom that's coming. And making friends with those citizens. That's, that's the focus. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed. Beware lest you destroy each other. So this is a, this, again, we can't, we can't read over this. This is talking about in the body what we can do to one another. And so we just have to learn to have this heart for one another, this care and concern for one another, this understanding that we are stewards and our job is to look after one another and to use our resources to trade and, and gain an increase so that when he comes, he can say, how much have you, have, how much have you gained by trading? I say then, walk in the spirit, 
and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the secret. In another place in Malachi 4, he says the wicked will be ashes under our feet. And I think if Mr. Hampton was a spiritual man, and he says, Adrian, do you realize the whole school likes you? And I say, but what about Leah? He would say, the wicked will be ashes under your feet. So we have to do all we can. That's why Christ says, brethren, take heed, take heed to yourselves. He's saying, take heed to one another. Look out for one another. Don't allow each other to fall into this category of people who have offended even the littlest one in Christ. So it's a tall order. I think we've done well. I think we've done well. I, 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 you know, again, you've got to be so careful with self-righteousness and self-congratulation. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge when, when we've done well. But it doesn't matter what we've done to date if in the future we betray one another. So something is coming. And I can't say exactly what it is, but the world is changing in such a way that enormous pressure is going to be put on Christians. So much so, the easy way out will be to betray one another. And so we cannot serve God and mammon. We have to commit ourselves entirely, wholeheartedly to serving God, and that means serving one another. So brethren, let's really work hard to uh, focus on building for the future and everything that we're doing now and with our young people as well we're doing sowing into the future in terms of how bad it's going to be in the present but especially in terms of the kingdom that's coming this has been a podcast from the burlington congregation of the church of god international we hope you are blessed by it To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.